Mind Matter Media presents Designing Nature's Half, the Landscape Conservation Podcast, where discussions center around the most current and innovative approaches to landscape conservation and design. This is the show for stakeholders who want to adapt to the climate crisis, halt biodiversity loss, and change the world by designing sustainable and resilient landscapes through collaborative conservation action. Hey everyone, welcome to episode three of Designing Nature's Half, the Landscape Conservation Podcast. I'm your co-host, Rob Campoloni. And I'm your other co-host, Tom Ewald. So Rob, uh, who do we have on, on deck this week? We have a great episode ahead, Tom. We're going to discuss climate adaptation with Doug Parsons. Uh, Doug's the director of America Adapts Media and host of America Adapts, the Climate Change Podcast. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. I've been a big fan of Doug's podcast since becoming aware of it. Uh, I started listening to a lot of podcasts during the COVID years, and uh, America Adapts has been kind of a regular one on my podcast playlist. I uh, I really like how it uh, co covers and explores so many different corners of climate adaptation with examples of different geographies and how different communities are adapting to climate. There's interviews with politicians, thought, thought leaders, and even artists. I recently listened to the ultimate guide to the National Climate Assessment. It was a great way to kind of boil down a complex piece of work. And uh, so it's just a great way to keep up to date on what's happening in climate change. We're intentionally opening up the podcast with two episodes about the climate crisis and, and guests who could speak to not only the enormity of it all, but also those who could provide helpful insight on how to combat it. In that light, it, it only made sense to bring Doug in for a discussion. For those who don't know Doug, he's first started uh, working in the adaptation field in Queensland, Australia, focusing on the impacts of climate change on agriculture. Upon returning to the United States, Doug joined the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, where he quickly assumed the duties as their very first climate change coordinator. And in that position, Doug developed the a first of its kind uh, climate change training course that has since been modeled by the federal government and the state of California. Then uh, Doug took a position as the climate change liaison with the National Park Service. And now Doug runs America Adapts Media, which is focused on using podcasts to spread the word about climate adaptation. So with that in mind, welcome to the show, Doug. Hey guys, wow, um, thanks for having me on. And Tom, I wanna take your recording and your plug for the show and like use it on my podcast. That's, that was fantastic. I don't think You're I've welcome. ever used that kind of stuff. So thank you. And Rob, thanks for having me on and congrats on this podcast. It's important work that you're doing and important conversations. And it's just a privilege to come on and looking forward to this conversation. Appreciate that, Doug. So uh, before we begin, did I miss anything from your bio that you'd like to add or highlight? No, I'd just like to say, and as you guys would probably appreciate, I think the natural resource sector has been doing adaptation before everyone. And you see people in the built environment and national security space in the last five, 10 years get into it. We were doing this 20 years ago. And so, yeah, first uh, people involved. And I, it's been kind of an interesting career journey for me. I felt, you know, I was in that conflict 
uh, conservation space. And now I just, I feel like I'm out of it, but it, the, those guys were doing it at the beginning and I learned from, from people in Australia. So it's, it's been an interesting development. You know, in preparing for today's show, I, I listened to a few of your podcasts and, and the first episode actually from 2016 uh, wow. that really resonated with me because you had Dr. Nick Fisicelli on uh, to discuss scenario planning. Tom and I have uh, some history with Nick as well, and it was good to hear him uh, speaking about scenario planning. Uh, our background with Nick was uh, we were co-authors along with other representatives from different organizations and agencies. Uh, we all worked together to publish a paper on landscape conservation design and published in 2018. So, you know, right off the bat, I think that demonstrates the the unique relationship between not only our podcast, but uh, our fields of expertise. You know, Tom and I in landscape conservation and, and design and you with climate change adaptation. What could you tell us about your podcast, America Adapts, and what do you hope to achieve uh, doing it? And do you feel like you're having a impact at all? Yeah. And yeah, that takes me back. You know, Nick was the very first guest. I saw I look fondly on that. So he and I worked together in the conservation, I mean, the climate change response program at the National Park Service. And he went off to the Scudic Institute up in Maine. And at those right. first few months, it was, um, I was looking for folks, hey, do you want to come on my podcast? And I'm sure folks were like, what, what are you doing? <laughs> What's this about? But they're like, all right, you know, I'll do this. And so it was kind of fun. It was exciting. And, and Nick was a great guest and obviously just a top-notch scientist. With the podcast, I've always been obsessed with how to communicate the issue of adaptation. I like communication. I, I've done a lot of public speaking. And so sort of the end of my kind of natural resource career, I was really looking for ways to talk about adaptation because it's still this wonky subject. You know, even if today, if you go out and ask the public, like, what is climate adaptation? 99% of the public will not be able to give you even a definition that's close. And I guess I'll just give you my own sort of informal is just how are we going to adapt to the impacts of climate change, like wildfires, sea level rise, and you know, everything in that area. And then I think we'll get into the idea of resilience. But with the podcast, I, I started it as I was between jobs. And I'm like, okay, this will just keep my mind sharp. And it was a chance for me to just have fun conversations, interesting conversations. And since I know the space, you know, I think I can ask a decent question or two. And then it just turned into something that I really enjoyed. And listeners sort of started coming out of the woodwork. And just one listener in particular, I knew I, I hit something that resonated. Jesse Keenan, who you just heard in that most recent episode, The Fundamentals of the National Climate Assessment, he reached out to me. He was at Harvard at the time. He's like, Doug, huge fan of the podcast. I love what you're doing here. And of course, I'm just like a Harvard professor is listening to this podcast. <laughs> and so I immediately invited him on and he does stuff with the built environment and architecture. And he just, he's brilliant. He does a lot of adaptation research and he and I have become really good buddies. He's actually executive producer of the podcast and, and that helps with recruitment and just introducing me to folks. And so I knew I had something. And so I started looking at, you know what, maybe I should do this full time. And I turned it into a small nonprofit and there are 197 episodes in the first six months or so. I was doing an episode every week and that was just too much. It burnt out and my episodes are long form. So if you know, you gotta, you gotta be ready to, you know, listen to a long interview or multiple interviews in a longer episode, but that's just, that's my niche. And I'm just there to explore what is climate adaptation. And like I said before, it's just been this amazing journey that 
I was in the natural resource space, conservation, and it's a much bigger universe. It's going to be everything. And so I've been able to connect and meet people in all walks of life, you know, urban planners and landscape architects. And I'm doing two Department of Defense episodes. And so just national security has come into this. And so it's been very exciting. And the people that I've met and that have now become my friends, and I get to actually travel a bit with it. I've gotten, you know, Africa and Australia and Mexico. So it's taken me quite a few places. It's been, it's been fun journey. And I guess to your point, and what I'm hoping to accomplish with this is actually influence the field of adaptation. It's still this emerging area. And a lot of people really are just, it's trial and error. And I'm bringing people on who are in the thick of it doing this work and exposing my listeners who are a lot of the most influential people in the adaptation space to these things. And so I encourage my listeners if they work in the space to reach out to me just so I know who you are. And I just, I hear high level, you know, highest levels of government, they listen to it. And so influencing even potential legislation. So I, it's, I'll brag a little bit here. It's probably the most influential I've ever been in my career. And it's this kind of odd thing that you kind of built from scratch. And that's very satisfying. And I just, it, you know, it, of course, it, it's based on the guests that I get on who are doing amazing work, but just who my listeners are and then using that information. And yeah, that's why I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing. And I, hopefully I'll be able to keep doing it. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a great story of how you're uh, getting impact and uh, how you're building topics. So can you speak a little bit more about that? Um, you know, like I said earlier, your podcast really intersects with a lot of different aspects of uh, climate adaptation with going into like art and theater and finance. And there's just so many different niches that you're you're going into. Can you speak a little, uh, like, how do you find these topics? Uh, do, you, do you find a topic and then you just kind of get into it or do you search out the right guest or, or do they come to you or is it kind of a mix of those? It is totally organic. And it used to be where I would read something or I would reach out and like, oh, would you please come on the podcast? And then over time, as I, I got a listener base and as more people, got it, you'll get this too with your podcast, but you get on these media lists too. And people, uh, these PR people reach out and they give you a lot of ideas for guests. And 99% of them are just not even relevant. They might be energy and all that. So the more people I meet, the more that they recommend people that I should interview. And then I also, there's just, getting into the, the logistics. I, I have just, you know, interviews with experts, like a long hour long conversation. That's just, that is sort of a pure educational podcast, but then I get sponsored to do episodes. So I collaborate with different groups. World Wildlife Fund has sponsored me for like 10 episodes. And so they really set the content for that episode, but it has to be climate adaptation, but they're the ones who took me to Africa and we looked at community-based adaptation there. And so it is kind of random, but it, what is kind of nice is a lot of it is just my own curiosity. And so if I do read an article or I hear about something, I just might randomly reach out and say, hey, I'd love to come talk about this. But I only publish every two weeks. And then all of a sudden, you know, that's 25 episodes a year, more or less. And it, I, I try to be somewhat timely, but over the summer, so much was happening with extreme heat that I kind of stepped away from it, even though I've done several episodes on it. I waited until the end of the summer, almost early fall. Then I had Lad Keith and Kelly Turner on just as sort of a wrap up. And so the thing with podcasts, you you have to kind of be disciplined unless you, you are a, a daily kind of thing like the New York Times Daily is that it's hard to be just newsy. Like you're just so keeping up with something that just happened because it, people listen to podcasts six months from now, a year from now. And so I try to make mine really evergreen. Mm -hmm. And then with subjects like climate fiction, I think you're probably alluding to that, Clive. That's totally random. Those are just kind of fun episodes that are right. really related to adaptation. But yeah. I, 
I like to shake things up once in a while. Yeah, it's a great mix. Yeah. Have you had any episodes devoted to the topic of landscape conservation, Doug? Oh, well, good question. You know, I think you know the answer to that. Well, specifically to the the field and no, not per se. I mean, I've done episodes around nature-based approaches to adaptation and those things where there's certainly lots of overlap, right? There's just that. And I don't think they're necessarily using that language. And so, Rob, I know you've been doing this for a while and specifically, no. And that in itself, I think, do you go to the National Adaptation Forum? They do those every couple of years. Do you guys go to those? I'm retired now, Doug. So okay. No, I, right. Well, I'm, and the reason I ask, I'm just like, you know, the okay, the panel discussions there, because obviously there's a, a lot of overlap. But um, yeah, I, I guess, you know, you've brought to my attention. Obviously, it's something I, I, I need to learn more about how that really does integrate because adaptation planning is this kind of new thing, but it does overlap with so many other previous efforts. Do they align or do they are they complementary or does one need to evolve to sort of adjust to the other? I'm not quite sure. Well, I, th I think there's definitely a relationship there. And I know two folks that might be very interested in coming on to your program, Doug, and talking okay. about it. <laughs> All right. Well, it sounds like uh, we need to work on sort of an outline and sort of the areas to cover in that and stuff that I need to read to get a bit more grounded. But no, I like this idea. It's my opinion that there's actually an increasing awareness of the climate crisis, um, not only at the national level or corporate level, but very importantly, at the individual level. So I do think the media has gotten much better reporting on climate change. Remember back in the day when you'd have like, you know, the, the pro and con, they don't really do that anymore. maybe just on Fox News or something, but just they, they don't look okay, here's a famed uh, climatologist is going to write a column and then we're going to bring a uh, conservative environmental economist to give the other viewpoints like this is madness. And so they, they stopped doing that. And I think that's a really positive development. And I think in the last two or three years, they have really got their heads around climate impacts and they're starting to tiptoe into adaptation. It's just, of course, when you talk about the impacts out there, you can't but help talk about how we're going to respond to it. But they're still not, I think, looking at adaptation as its own discipline, its own area, like the national security sector. Well, the adaptation is its own sector. The media, I still think, is just generalizing a lot of things. But they've gotten so much better. And I think the, the heat coverage that they've done over the last two summers has been really good. So that that affects people that they, they see that. And I think you know, universities, uh, hopefully your average young person is thinking about this more. You see some of the polling out there. The, the cynic in me, even though I'm very positive on the podcast, the cynic in me is like, I, I don't give too much credit to, to a lot of these surveys. What, what is it? The six Americas and the Yale climate. It's, I think those are almost kind of push polls or like, all right, do you want to do something about climate change? And then people are like, oh, okay, sure. I am a big fan of regulation, which you know, not a lot of people are. Um, you think about recycling, it's like, no matter how good it gets, you might just get 30, 40% people recycling because it's a voluntary thing. At the end of the day, government needs to, you know, mandate some areas. And I think we're going to have to head in that direction eventually, but we're, we're in this transition phase. And so, but I'm with you. I'm overall, I'm optimistic. It's, it's just exciting to see a lot of people come into the space. And I hear from my listeners who they reach out to me and they ask me, how can I you know, get a job in the adaptation? I don't necessarily have access to specific jobs, but we brainstorm like university programs and different areas that they get into. And so I think there's a, an army of young people that really are wanting to dedicate their lives to this. So I, I guess I'm halfway with you on that. I'm still, you know, 
it it's hard. A lot of you know b- people don't necessarily mean anything bad. They just don't care, and, and it, it's hard to get over that sort of apathy around these really important issues. What if we could rescue the planet from the ravages of the climate crisis and, in the process, save a million species from extinction? Would we do it? Former U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Senior Policy Advisor for the National Wildlife Refuge System, Robert Campoloni, explores the United States' most pressing conservation challenge since Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, the triple planetary crisis, pollution, climate boiling, and biodiversity loss. In Designing Nature's Half, a practical guide to conserve 50% by 2050, Campoloni reveals previous nationwide initiatives to design sustainable and resilient landscapes, provides an easy-to-follow how-to guide for taking a collaborative, science-based approach to identify conservation actions across large landscapes, and advocates for taking a third nationwide try to design nature's half. Learn how to take a synergistic approach to mitigating the climate crisis and conserving biodiversity in Designing Nature's Half, a practical guide to conserve 50% by 2050 and be part of the global movement to save the planet. For more information, visit www.designingnatureshalf.com. Yeah, no, I see a lot of um, interest in the younger generations about climate change and climate adaptation. And, um, you know, so you've been following this pretty closely in your podcast since uh, 2016. And uh, can you describe some of the evolutions or kind of, I don't know if trends is the right word, but some of the things that have really taken hold in the adaptation space that that you've seen and that you've covered over the years? All right. Well, back in the day, natural resources, there used to be kind of just this kind of canned approach of, all right, let's do some scenario planning and then... Uh, well, and it's a mixture of scenario planning and a vulnerability assessment, and then we'll do an adaptation plan. And it's just gotten so much more sophisticated than that. Mm-hmm. And so that's been a really interesting development because that was, you know, when I was at National Park Service, when I was working for in Florida, that was just your standard way to kind of get started. And when other sectors getting involved, that's great. And I, I don't know if you're going to have specific questions around resilience, but resilience has sort of taken over the word adaptation. And I don't think that's a good thing. I use resilience a lot too, because they've sort of co-opted me in some ways, but there are about 500 definitions for resilience, just a few, like a couple for climate adaptation. And now you're getting people talking about personal resilience and it just, it's very confusing. And I don't think it's very helpful when it comes to doing technical things and people really, you know, cities and everyone trying to get it here. And it's understood why the government co-opted resilience because they're here to protect. They're here to, you know, they need a climate proof society. And, you know, adaptation, I think, as I describe it, is sort of like the umbrella approach to it. And resilience might just be sort of a tactic underneath that. So the strategy is adaptation. But, you know, we want to make this inland community resilient to uh, wildfire. That's one thing. But are you going to make Miami resilient to eight feet of sea level rise? That Probably not. So what's adaptation? It's, then we start talking about managed retreat. So adaptation just lends itself to saying, all right, we might not be able to make everything resilient to what's coming. And just people get sloppy with the definition of resilient. And I, I've tried, I was going to do a whole episode. I was going to call it adaptation versus resilience. And I just, I never got around to it. And that kind of gets me back to what you were just talking about with the models. It's really interesting to have all this data and information that's that's out there and and having different stakeholders be able to look at all these different climate models. What I'm interested, you know, 
kind of going back to what you were talking about, the Wild Wild West podcast, and I, I listened to that too. I thought it was really fascinating. Um, how are people, you know, what are some case studies of where people are really using the climate data, uh, communities are using climate data to to make decisions about their their communities and their landscapes? Have, have you run across that? Yeah, and here's a specific one. I actually, this episode hasn't come out, but I'm, I'm working with a group called Forerunner and they do some climate modeling. They have some software, but I got to interview some local government folks that are actually using it. So it's been really interesting. And of course, the, the part of the problem here is like, well, you know, I mean, of course, there's a flooding event and the modeling software helps with like projecting that. But if it's making 30, 50 year projections, you're like, all right, well, yeah. I'll come back in 50 years and we'll see if you were right, if this was right. worth the money. But just talking to those local government people, yeah, it's it's really useful to have this software that allows them to look at existing planning um, processes. And so you guys are probably familiar, like, you know, it's, um, uh, is it FEMA? Now I'm blanking, but like, there's the one in a 100 year flood idea, right? right? That concept. And so a lot of planning, a lot of building that happens, you, they think about that. What's, what is the floodplain? And, but those systems are so out of date, you know, the one mm -hmm. in a hundred year is in fact, the one in a 500 years almost becoming silly. And it's with this new software, with this modeling, it's allowing them, they have to still plan within that system because the federal government is slow as molasses when it comes to a lot of these things too. But I, I do think it's opening up the imagination of local planners into like responsible planning and you know what what the future is going to hold and, and what you just mentioned too is like you you know landscape planning used to be like okay let's look at the last 50 years and then kind of plan around the next 50 it's just like no it's you know we're right. in the world now and you can't plan around past of course that can inform decision making but you need models that are going to get you to really think outside of that Right. You'd hope that it would provide at least a range of possible future uh, possibilities and then let people uh, then develop strategies around those potentials in the future. Well, and I did, you brought up a good point and I, I have trouble. I do a lot of public speaking associated with the podcast too. And I have a slide and you know, it's just like, it shows coastal sea level rise and it's just like 2050, 2099. And that is so hard to communicate for people. Like you used mm -hmm. to say, okay, the, the oceans are going to come up eight feet by 2099. And that means nothing to everyone because it's like, okay, well, is it just semi-normal until 2098? And then we have eight feet for them to visualize this gradual elevation. It's so hard to get your head around. And so um, when I, I do see like a scientific uh, uh presentation where they're doing that. I'm just like, oh, I, I get why they have to put that there, but it's pointless. It's pointless. It's just so abstract to most people that when you say 2050, it just means almost nothing to it. And I don't, I don't know necessarily the solution. It's just more, I think, confidence in saying this area will be flooded relatively soon to a way that's going to make it hard to even live here. I mean, I don't, I, what is the solution, but the, that's what makes communicating climate change so difficult. So even though we're seeing impacts today, and you know, like I said, the media is getting much better. When the we talk about, well, by 2100, that means nothing to most people in regards to the urgency that they place on the issue. So it, it, it's really difficult to work with climate change, right? Let's uh, shift from planning to uh, implementation. Do you have a sense of 
with the state of um, implementation, on the ground implementation, regardless of the scale, uh, is is occurring. Anything there? Well, I don't. You know, unfortunately, that's just Jesse Keenan. He did all the heavy lifting. I did. You know that most recent episode with the National Climate Assessment. They they listed in the adaptation chapter. They mapped out where like communities and I think state governments that are doing adaptation plans. And I'm, I'm blanking on the number now. I don't know if either of you remember it, I'm like, but it was significant and there was a lot of progress made, but I mean, it's still a fraction of a lot of communities that need to do it. And so there are people out there that are trying to measure those metrics and see where we're at. And that that's not even factoring in like, is it a good adaptation plan? Right. You know, did they, <laughs> do they just create a, an addendum to their local plan where they just say, and we need to consider the impacts of climate change. All right. You're mm-hmm. getting credit for adaptation planning. Um, <laughs> so it, a ton of progress has been made 10 years ago. It was places like Massachusetts, California, you know, a few others that were really doing some sophisticated adaptation planning. There's a lot more going on. And then you've got corporations that are doing, even in states that might just be hostile to it, there's things that are happening. Like Charleston. I did an episode on Charleston as a, a professor at, uh, at Susan. Um, this is my mind it has to just reboot itself. But she wrote a book about Charleston and how that local government is dealing with climate adaptation. And so it was somewhat critical. But in the big picture, it just kudos to Charleston for doing a ton of stuff. Because if you look at the state government in in South Carolina, heck a lot of nothing happening going on. But Charleston's like, we're not waiting around for this. We're going to start really because I mean, it's this bread and butter. They're they're right there. And it doesn't look good for Charleston. But they're trying. They are really trying. And uh, they have a legacy of dealing with race in ways that are just so complex that are also factoring into their adaptation planning. So it's it's a mixed bag out there. Do you have a sense as to what the state of adaptation finance currently is, Doug? JP Morgan, they just released several reports on how it's impacting like the, the health sector and some of the built environment sectors. And so the fact that JP Morgan dedicated staff to start saying, all right, here's some opportunities for investment and thinking about finance. And so I think quickly they're coming on board. And since so much money is involved with the Infrastructure Act that, you know, you you have to factor in climate change. So that's what gets me excited because I'll be honest, you two might not appreciate this, but like I did conservation for most of my career, but I'm sorry. But in some ways it's very just, it's not as influential as we, I think we deluded ourselves into thinking it was. And it's just, it's just reality. And you you look at the money that's being spent it's just not there. And so when you get the big corporate Mm -hmm. folks starting to think about this, I get excited. doesn't mean they're going to do it right all the time, but it's just like big pots of money, the insurance companies. And so Rob, your question, I think finance, they're getting their heads around it. They're starting to trying to figure out what climate modeling areas that they want to focus on to help their investors get involved, but they're getting involved in a big way. And the episode is just very early days of like an outline of what we're going to cover, but uh, you know, get, get in, we're going to have a bank involved and we're going to interview some CEOs, maybe with some startups that are looking for a finance investment dollar. So, yeah, that's, that's fascinating to hear the whole climate finance uh, space is really interesting to hear uh, how, yeah, the, the, you know, government grants are not going to get us there uh, to be fully uh, adapted and resilient to climate change. So getting some new ways, innovative ways to finance. I think that's, that's a great idea. Um, kind of building off, you were talking a little bit about Charleston as, as you know, having some inspiration of, of success 
you know, out of the hundreds of podcasts that you've done over the past years, what, you know, what have you seen that has been, you know, the most successful or most memorable uh, efforts that you've seen uh, as part of your podcasting? Oh man, when you think of 197, it all just, and I just, I'm sorry, I blanked it. Susan Crawford, she's a, she's a law professor at Harvard. And that's who I was blanking on the Charleston book that she wrote. And I apologize for that. I, so I just did a recent episode and it's very interesting. It, I uh, went to San Diego for a, a climate summit that the Climate Science Alliance put on. And so it's a relatively small conservation group, but they punch above their weight belt. And so I went there and covered, and they work with tribal groups really closely. And so I was fascinated by their model of partnership building. And I just, you know, I, I'd be the first one to kind of roll my eyes about like partners are so important. Well, okay. Yeah, I get it. But they have really kind of integrated that into their DNA and it's allowed them to like really make inroads into the different kinds of people who should be involved. And then when it comes to their adaptation planning, they've come up with a whole structure of how they do this. And again, it's California. There's just a lot of supportive people in the community that allows them to do that. But for a smaller model, I was really impressed with what they're doing. And this was a student-led thing, and it's been a while, but the, the the Harvard Graduate School of Design, I went up there and interviewed some students, and they were working with East Boston and people like communities around the airport. And so it remains to be seen. They had a kind of a community meeting that I was there capturing, but that was exciting that these students were out there working with that community using their obviously expertise to come up with specific things that that local community can use. And when they think about planning, because apparently I didn't even know this, the airport, Logan airport is under serious threat of sea level rise that even though Boston has done some amazing things that they've, they've got, <laughs> they've got some issues coming up. So I, I guess I could go on and on, but uh, that just, uh, I went to Australia. I got it. I had some listeners in Australia and they invited me from the Victoria state government. They brought me down to, to give a keynote there, but I also did an episode and just that sort of state level integration of adaptation planning. I, mm. I was just really, imp I mean, Australia has just done, I, I mentioned, I used to live there a while ago and things obviously have changed, but it's just when a state in the state governments there, and they're only like seven states or eight states, and they just take governing I think, a lot more seriously than a lot of our states do. Mm. So you get healthcare, environmental planning, and then of course they don't do everything right, but all right, we're going to provide resources and grants and, you know, getting the staff on it. And so Victoria, they were doing some really cool things. So you mentioned, uh, you know, partnerships and the importance of them in uh, adaptation projects and totally agree with you there. We use this term landscape conservation design, designing sustainable and resilient landscapes, both uh, within a socio-ecological context. And part of the, of the design process is uh, actually, the ver you know the design process itself is stakeholder driven, and so we agree with uh, that that statement about the importance of partnerships. Uh, is there anything else within you know your realm, uh, within the realm of adaptation, that you could speak to that uh, kind of promotes the success? Generally speaking, of course of adaptation projects other than say the partnership aspect of it? You know, I guess looking for those, I guess the point I would make in answering that is just partnerships obviously very important, but what's exciting about climate adaptation is that even though, you know, it's been 
people have been doing for 20 years and other people say they've been doing much longer, but it's just really specifically, it's still this emerging sector. It's still this thing where people are, are starting, trying to figure it out. And what I've just encountered in, is this energy of, okay, well, this is an area that I could actually influence. You know, when I was in Florida, we were doing things that you know, no one really did before and no one was telling you you couldn't. And so adaptation was something different. And so I'm, I find that energy in people that are getting into the adaptation space that, that they can do something, you know, on the mitigation side with carbon, there's this sort of, you know, you, there's this resignation that of course we have to handle things, but it's so difficult. Everyone agree. And then this is about cutting things and you've got to step back on your lifestyle. Whereas adaptation, what I hear from my listeners is that likes the sort of can do attitude of we're doing something though in response. So even though these are grave, really urgent things, it's just like you can get your head around about making a community more resilient to wildfire. And I think that is a common pattern that I'm seeing out there. And, you know, the National Adaptation Forum, they do that every couple of years. And it, I think they, they're more natural resource focused, but you're seeing more, I mean, additional conferences kind of coming into the resilience and adaptation space. And there's just that new energy of, okay, you can actually influence this new field, like, you know, architecture, you know, it's been around for forever. It's hard to, you might have an innovative design or something, but actually influencing the fundamental nature of the sector, you can't do that very often. And that's what's happening with adaptation. And that's what you're kind of seeing out there. And I think that's incredibly exciting. Well, Doug, I'm afraid we're running out of time, but it's been great having you on as a guest. And it's been a great discussion. Appreciate your time, energy and knowledge on this topic. Do you have any parting thoughts to share with our listeners? Thanks, guys, for having me on. Those were fantastic questions. My goodness, you've made me shake the cobwebs off my brain. You you forget <laughs> how, like, when you're the host and you're just dealing with all these different topics, but you don't have to go that deep into them. You kind of forget some of these things. So I, I appreciate being on that side of it. And just, yeah, if people are interested in listening, I'm sure you'll probably have it in your show notes, but I have a website, americadaps.org, that has links to all the websites, but just more additional information about what I'm trying to do with the podcast. And I just wish you guys luck. This is your, you know, early episodes for you. And this is an important conversation that you're bringing into the fold. So good luck. Appreciate that, Doug. And we'll definitely share that link in the pod notes. Tom, do you have any parting thoughts to share? No, I'm just very appreciative to Doug's time and thoughts. I thought this was a great discussion. Okay, well, thanks again to our guest, Doug Parsons. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to episode three of Designing Nature's Half, the Landscape Conservation Podcast. I've been your co-host, Rob Campoloni. And I've been your other co-host, Tom Ewald. Join us again every two weeks for another informative episode of De Designing Nature's Half, the Landscape Conservation Podcast. Designing Nature's Half, the Landscape Conservation Podcast is researched, written, edited, and produced by Rob Campoloni and Tom Ewald. Lucas Gallardi created the Designing Nature's Half cover art and logo design. Tom Askin is the voice behind the intro and outro. And the music was written and performed by composer Alexi Kistlin via Pixabay. Designing Nature's Half, the Landscape Conservation Podcast, is a proud member of Mind Matter Media, a startup multimedia network whose mission is to change the world by designing sustainable and resilient landscapes for people, planet, and prosperity.